invite you to open your Bibles with me to John's Gospel, to chapter 16. Two Sundays ago, I spoke from Acts chapter 17 on who is God. Last Sunday, from Matthew 16 on who is Jesus. And this morning, from John's Gospel also, I want us to consider who is the Holy Spirit. And so if you have your Bible, read with me in John chapter 16, starting at verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. God, we recognize you and honor and praise you. And thank you for your presence. We ask that through your word, you would speak to each of us in a personal way, that we would know you that we would know your Son, and that we would know your Holy Spirit. And that such knowledge would change and transform us into a bride that is without spot or wrinkle or blemish, made clean and holy, washed and set apart for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning belongs to a section in the Bible known as the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is gathered alone with 12 of his closest disciples, and he knows that in a few hours he will be arrested and that his time with these disciples, these men, is about to end. John records these are his last words. And so he's intentional in what he says. He may have even prayed and prepared ahead of time on what he needed to say to them, what things were of most importance, and what he wanted them to remember. I was trying to imagine if I knew that my own departure was imminent and I only had a few hours to live with my family around me, 
with Mindy at my side and our three daughters and son and sons-in-law and our grandson, I wondered what I would say to them. I would for sure tell them how much I love them, how thankful I was for each of them, and how proud I was of them. And then as I thought more about this, I think I would go on to say some of the same things that Jesus said to these men. Beginning in chapter 13, the first verse, if you'll notice, this is a kind of a transition. Jesus has been ministering. He knows he's about to leave and go to the cross and suffer. The whole Spirit of God is about to come. And notice chapter 13 through 16, there's a transition here. He's preparing them. And notice in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, he knew that his hour had come. What hour? His hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. And so this marks a transition. It started here in chapter 13 up through our text. Jesus is saying some things to the disciples. And so I just kind of want to summarize what he is saying to them and just kind of paraphrase a little bit. If you want to follow along, you can in your Bible. In John chapter 13, verse 15, Jesus says to them, I have given all of you an example, an example on how to live. I, I have done my best to serve you, and I want all of you to follow my example, and I want you to serve each other. And then in John 13, verse 34, he says, guys, I want you to love each other. It's a way to demonstrate that we are family. Chapter 14, verse 1, I, I know you all are upset. I know that you're troubled, but I want you to urge, and I urge you to keep believing in God. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there you may be also. So I, I know that you're troubled, but I want you to continue to believe in God and to believe in me and to believe in heaven. Believe in this place that I have prepared for you. Hold on to your faith. In verse 13 of that same chapter, I urge you to remember that God hears and answers prayer. In verse 15, I want you to do your very best to keep God's commands. Chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, brothers abide in me and, and I promise that I will abide in you. It's the only way to bear fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Those are his last words. Those are powerful words. I can almost hear Jesus saying to them, I want you men to promise me that you will do these things. To keep serving God, to keep loving others, to keep living by faith. Continue to rely upon God through prayer. Abide in me, obey my commands, and stay faithful to the end. Brothers, finish well. Finish well. He knew his hour had come, that he was about to die, to go to the cross. 
Repeatedly up to this hour, he had been telling them, I'm going away, I'm going away. The Son of Man will suffer many things, and then he'll be tried, and then he'll be crucified, and on the third day, he will rise again from the dead. They didn't really grasp it yet. And then here, this, this promise. Chapter 14, verse 18, he says, Brothers, I will not leave you as orphans. Not as orphans. I'll come to you. I'm going to leave you, but I will come to you. Chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, For my Father will send you a helper. The Holy Spirit will come. Chapter 15, verse 26, When the helper comes... When he arrives, he will tell you all about me. He will testify of me. And here in our text in John 16, verse 7, Jesus references the helper, the helper. When he comes, this helper, this comforter. And so who is this one that Jesus refers to? Who is the Holy Spirit? And I can assure you, even in the church, there is much confusion, even some ignorance today regarding the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'd go as far to say that there is even some fear of him, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Most of that ignorance and fear is the result of some who want to add to what the Bible teaches regarding the Spirit, and they're set on emphasizing emotionalism and sensationalism, and they place their own personal experiences above the Scriptures. They place experience above what the Bible teaches, and it will create division and strife in the church. And there's others who pride themselves in knowing what the Bible teaches about the Spirit of God, but they feel like it's their job, their role in the church to control it, to keep everything in the church safe, to keep things predictable and routine, and I would say boring. Who get a little nervous when the Spirit of the Lord begins to do something new and they get a little nervous when the Holy Spirit begins to produce some emotion and feeling and awe and worship. And people get a little filled with the Spirit and a little excited with God's Spirit and it kind of freaks some Baptists out. <laughs> I began pastoring while I was still in seminary. I was 24 years of age and entirely out of the blue, what well, at least I thought it was out of the blue. I got a phone call and my name had been submitted to a search team in Western Kentucky, in Webster County, a little coal mining town. And this man on the other end of the phone asked me if I would be interested in talking to them and I listened carefully and very politely told him I would not, that we had moved to Louisville to attend seminary and believe God wanted us to finish, and so I wasn't interested. And that ended that. That was in the July, summer of 1984. Minnie and I kept working there, living in Louisville, both of us going to church, serving the Lord, enjoying life. Keep, she was working, I was continuing to work on my education, continued also to work some part-time jobs at the same time, and 
Then three months later in September, the phone rang again and this same man's voice was on the other end. And he said, Brother Charlie, it's kind of weird when you're 24 years old and somebody calls you Brother Charlie, you know. Our pastor search team has been praying and your name has resurfaced and that's what he said. He said, we've gone through every one of our resumes and we've narrowed them all down and the ones we've narrowed down, we've gone through every one of them and we've had several men come in to preach and just nothing has worked out and would you reconsider meeting with us? You're the only person we've not met with and I thought, I've not even submitted a resume. In fact, the truth is, I didn't even have a resume. I never put a resume together. And he didn't say it, but when he said that, I thought, well, yeah, I, so I'm all you have left. <laughs> and and uh, while he was still speaking, I was thinking, you know, we've moved to Louisville by faith. We felt led by God to work on education, and I've come this far, and I'm gonna, not going to quit now. And I was about to say, no, his name was Tommy. Tommy, I'm not interested. Mindy and I are going to finish here. He asked this question. He's a good salesman. He said, have you ever pastored a church before? And I said, well, no, I have not. And he said, why, why, don't, why don't you just drive down and meet with us? He was, a, he was an attorney, and he, he, I guess he knew how to convince, you know, his little sales. He said, why don't you just drive down and meet with us? And if nothing else, it would be good experience for you to go through an interview process with a pastor search team. And I said, well, that made sense, okay. And so I told him we'd do that, and we set a date. And Mindy was listening. She was listening to that phone call with a call in, and she asked, what are we doing? And I said, I, I have no idea. <laughs> and so there we sat in a little apartment there in Louisville, just looking at each other. And, and she was also five and a half months pregnant at that time. And, and so we knew we weren't really interested. So I just, in October, I just drove down to Providence, Kentucky, Webster County. I just drove down there by myself. And she stayed in Louisville to rest and, because we knew we weren't interested. That's the truth. And I went through the interview process that weekend, preached Sunday morning, preached Sunday night, and before leaving, that search team asked to meet with me again. And they all started saying things like, uh, we just kind of feel like you should be here, and they were ready to pull the trigger. And, and, and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to say, and so I drove back to Louisville that night, three hours, trying to make sense of that weekend, and got back to the apartment and went in and put things down, and Mindy said, well, how did it go? And I said, it's terrible. It's just terrible. <laughs> she said, what do you mean it's terrible? I said, that search committee, I think, wants to call us. She said, what? And I said, you know, you got to be kidding. And she said, that's terrible. That's terrible. What did you tell them? <laughs> I said, I didn't know what to say. They said, a time for us to come back in November. She said, what? I said, yeah, I know. And going back in November, she was eight months pregnant. And she said, I'm going to be eight months pregnant. Great with John. I'm going to go back and meet with the church. And I said, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not, I wasn't sorry that she was pregnant. I was sorry she was eight months pregnant and have to go, go back to church. But, and then I got really nervous. I, I remembered a couple of things that I noticed there, but I, I didn't really take them very seriously because I knew we weren't interested. And so I somehow tried to prepare her and tell her about these couple of things before we got there. And I said, uh, oh, yeah, someone on that search committee, somebody told them that you played the piano and sang, and they asked if you would do that when we came back, and I, I volunteered you to do that. 
And, and I don't even remember what happened after that. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, I think the Holy Spirit just got involved and erased that from my memory. And then the second thing, the parsonage where we were to live was literally built on and connected to the back of the church. And you could literally open a door and walk into the church from the house. Those church people thought that was wonderful. You don't have to get out in the rain. You can just walk into church. (laughs) And I was trying to think to my wife, how do I tell her we're living in the back of the church? And so we drove back in November. She was eight months pregnant and and went well, and the end of the story is we accepted a call and began serving there in January of 1985. I was 24 years of age, and we drove back and forth from Louisville, three hours back and forth to Webster County, Kentucky, and I finished seminary. And the point of that story is I was young, 24 years of age, really young, had never pastored a church before, was still learning the Bible, and had both Old Testament and New Testament surveys and theology classes, and studied some things about God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, but most of it was all academic. I had no experience on how to really apply any of that. And what happened about a year into pastoring that church, I discovered that before we arrived, some of the members of my congregation, a group of them had driven up to Evansville, Indiana to see a famous televangelist and to go to this signs and wonders crusade. And at the end of the signs and wonders crusade, some of those members from that church or maybe all of them, I don't really know, they went forward at the end to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and to be baptized into the Holy Ghost. And they heard some other things, and and I'm not sure else really what all happened that weekend, but that group came back to church, all of this unbeknowing to me, and brother, they were fired up. And they became a zealous group with an agenda, and their agenda was for everyone else into the church to discover what they had discovered, to receive and to experience what they had received and experienced. And these people were, I mean, this was all sincere. They were godly people. They loved the Lord. They, They loved the church. They loved his word, and they had become close friends to Mindy and I in that short time. And so I began to learn about some things that they were doing in the church, and some of it was causing division and confusion and things like, I found out I got a a phone call from Nell Black. She was an older lady in her mid-70s, and she had cancer, and so I found out there was a group of these ladies who had got some oil, and they went over to Nell's house, and they poured oil on her and anointed her with oil and placed their hands on her and prayed prayers of faith and, and just told her if she had enough faith, God would heal her of her cancer. And a couple months after that is when I found out about it, and she continued to get worse, and she called me one day in the office, and she was in tears and said, Brother Charlie, she said, can I talk to you? I said, absolutely. So I went over to Nell's house, and she was tore up. She was upset. She said, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm a Christian. I'm not sure I have any faith because they anointed with me in oil and told me that I've had enough faith that God would heal me of the cancer, and I think I'm getting worse, so I'm not really sure I'm saved. I don't know if I really... I know the Lord, whether I really have faith. What's wrong with me? And these ladies who had anointed with her, they were zealous and they were sincere. 
And they were doing some things like that that was causing some problems in the church. And they began to affect the worship service. They had an agenda in the worship service. And they were going to, by themselves, they were going to somehow move the Holy Spirit and cause the Holy Spirit. And so they began to do some things in the worship service. And I could go on and on. But when all of this started happening, it created some confusion in the church and, and some division. And I was 24 years of age, young pastor, and I didn't really know what to do. But what I thought I would do is I would just pull them all together, find out who all these people were and meet with them. And we'd all sit down and talk and pray and we'd work it all out. How do you think that went? <laughs> well... I found out even more things that were going on, and the point of the story is I didn't know what to do. I knew that I wanted to love everybody, and I wanted everybody to get along. But what I understood from Scripture and what they understood, we just, we just were not lining up, and the longer we met, the worse it got. And I didn't know what to do because I didn't know really what I believed and I didn't really know what I believed about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit because I didn't really know what the Bible said specifically about it. I had never studied it in depth, the person of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and how that's to affect a church, how that's to affect the life of a believer. And to make a longer story shorter, the meeting didn't turn out well. About 15 or 20 people over the next several weeks left the church and they were good people, people that were godly and loved the Lord, but they left the church and it created a big hole in the church and a rift in the church. And it was very painful for me as a young pastor. I, I went there to hopefully see it go and get stronger and grow. And it seemed like it was getting worse and going in the wrong direction. But God, but God, God used that experience to drive me to the scriptures to study and to, everything I could find in the scripture, everything about the spirit of God in scripture, I was digging and digging and digging for weeks and weeks and weeks studying the Holy Spirit. And I grew greatly during that time and discovered some things about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that have stayed with me for my entire ministry. And after Easter, I want to begin a message series entitled Life in the Spirit. What does it really look like for us to live spirit-filled lives? But this morning, in the next few minutes, I want us to consider who is the Holy Spirit. And I'll say to you first, the Holy Spirit is a unique person, a person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is not an influence. The Holy Spirit is not just a power. The Holy Spirit is not like the force in Star Wars. In Greek, the Holy Spirit is not or is always referred to as a noun. The Holy Spirit is never referred to as an it in the Bible. The Bible does not say it came upon them. The Bible does not say it filled them. Rather, Jesus always refers to the Holy Spirit as he or him or his in a personal way. If you have your Bible, look there in our, from our text, John 16. Look at verse 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you, not it. And when he has come, 
He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Look down at verse 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare to you all of these things the Father has said are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Do you, do you get it? Do you get, see the, the emphasis there? In Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, for where there is one body, there is one spirit and one Lord and one God and Father of us all. And so the point is the Holy Spirit is a real person of the Godhead. He's not an it. He's not a force. He's not an influence. He's not just some power. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter, another counselor, another helper. The Greek word in John 14, 16 is parakleton. We known as paraclete. And it specifically refers to the Holy Spirit as a comforter, as a counselor, as one uh, of a helper. And the meaning of paraclete is twofold. First, it's an advocate and an ally. An advocate is one who takes our case. He's an advocate. First John 2, I write these to you little children that you may not sin. But if you do sin, know this, we have an advocate with a father. He's one that takes our case. He's also an ally, an ally, one who fights on our behalf, fights on our team, on our side. And so the person of the Holy Spirit is one who comes alongside, who comes actually literally to indwell us as believers for the purpose to strengthen us and counsel us and comfort us and to encourage us. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, Then the churches throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think of comfort, we think of what? Comfort. Well, we think of a big cushy couch with soft blankets. You know, you guys, you know, you guys have those little, I don't know what they're called, these new blankets they come with, they're just so soft. And you sit on a couch, get one of those soft blankets, you know fall back into that lazy boy and just sink down into that thing, pull up the leg bar. I mean, that's comfort. Comfort. Now they make these pads, you know, you put on top of your mattress and man, they make it even it's like a, a pillow, pillow top. Just comfort. Well, when the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit being our comforter, one who comes to take our case and to fight for us and to counsel us and encourage us, it's never for the purpose to make your life or mine as a believer, as a follower of Christ, it's never to make our life soft and easy and cushy as followers of Jesus. No. For the word paraclete is also, it conveys a prodding, a prodding effect. For example, if you looked at a picture of a military general and this military general was leading his troops into battle and that general pulled out his sword and placed it into a prominent place into the, uh, to the back of one of his soldiers and began to stick him with that sword and prod him forward from a biblical definition, that general is comforting the troops. 
comforting the troops. The Holy Spirit is comforting, encouraging, counseling us, and it's not to make my life and your life as a Christian soft and easy and cushy. Right? That's what we think about. Oh, the Holy Spirit is comforting. He's going to come alongside us. He's going to, he's going to rub my head, and he's going to pat my back, give me a little massage, just comfort me, comfort me. That's not what you see the Bible conveying at all regarding the Holy Spirit. He does. I don't I don't even know if he, well, I start to, I don't even know if he cares about that. Well, he probably cares about that, but that's, that's not really what he's indwelling us to do. The Holy Spirit is coming alongside of us to fight for us and to get involved in our case because we're engaged in a battle, a battle. Holy Spirit is personal. He is with us, indwelling us at our side, prodding us forward in faith and devotion and serving the Lord. And listen, I said this before, the only way to serve the Lord is to serve people. Look at the Bible. You can't serve the Lord if you're not serving people, getting involved with people. Notice also in John 14, 16, Jesus uses the word, he says, referring to this comfort, this prayer he says, another you see that in John 14, 6, he uses the word another. And I will pray and ask the Father for another, another, and he will give him to you. And there's two words in the Greek for another. One is heteros and one is halos. Anybody hear heteros? That sound like a, a word you know, heteros, another? Heteros is another of a different kind. So these two ink pens, both are pens, but one is silver, one is black, they are another of a different kind. But halos is another of the same kind. And so these are two pens of the same kind. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit is another, referring to himself, another of the same kind. The same kind. The ministry of Jesus, this is the point, is no different than the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I've talked to people before, and they, they, they want to study and learn about the Spirit of God, so they go to read the book of Acts. The best place to study the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is not in the book of Acts. You, you certainly see how the Spirit comes upon to indwell believers and some characteristics of the church and how the actions of the apostle broke down barriers to advance the gospel. But if you really want to study the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, you study from the gospels. And the more you understand about the ministry of Jesus, the more you're going to understand about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're halos, halos, another of the same kind. And so the Holy Spirit is unique and personal, just like Jesus. He's not a force. He's not an influence. He's not an it. He's not a power. He gives power, but he's not a power. And just to clarify, which I'll explain in much greater detail, when you and I get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. Amen? Right? He comes in to indwell us. You see that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He, for the first time, he was the Spirit of God was not just with his people, but he comes to indwell his people on the day of Pentecost. And so when we're saved, he indwells us. But that means that you and I as Christian people indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we do not have to pray and we do not have to wait and tarry. He is not an it. He's not parceled out or pieced out. When you and I get saved, we get all of Jesus. We get all of the Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion that we're ever going to get. 
Not some second work of grace, some second filling. You got to pray for it, do something as an expression to know that you, 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 you get Jesus, all of him, through the Holy Spirit when you're saved, all of it. And the question is not whether Jesus has all of you. The question is does, or whether you have all of the Holy Spirit. The question is, does he have all of you? That's the challenge, to be fully yielded and surrendered to him. Second, he is God, the third person of the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 says, Now the Spirit is the Lord, and the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, there's liberty. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit possesses all of the same qualities and all of the same attributes as God. Psalm 139 teaches us that the Holy Spirit, just like God, is everywhere. The psalmist says, Where? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend uh, to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. He's omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. The Holy Spirit knows everything. 2 Corinthians 2.10, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of the mind of a man. The things, spiritual things that God has prepared for those who love him. And God has revealed these things, yes, these deep things of God through what? Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows all things. And the Holy Spirit is powerful. He's omnipotent. You remember in Luke 1 when the angel Gabriel says, appears to Mary and says of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit of God will come upon you and the power of the Spirit, the power of the highest, the Almighty God will overshadow you. Paul says the same things in Romans 8, 11. It is the Spirit of God who raised Jesus in power. We sing of it. Child song I learned in church. Our God is so strong, or so great, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. And you, our God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. We just kept singing that over. Pretty, pretty theologically sound song. And so the Spirit is one with God, one in essence, but distinct in person. The Spirit is also one with Jesus, but distinct in person. It's known as the doctrine of the Trinity, and it begins in Genesis and runs through the entire Bible. If you have your Bible, look with me very quickly in Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2, first two verses. For it says, in the beginning, who created? God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And here it is. And the Spirit of God was hovering or moving over the face of the waters. The point is, the two are one. God who created is the same as the Spirit who moved over, hovered over the face of the deep. Some of you know John's prologue. In John chapter 1, it says of Jesus, Jesus created all things. I thought he said God created all things. The Spirit was hovering. And John says, and Jesus created all things, and there was not anything made that was made apart from him. Paul says the same things to the Colossians. By him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, by him and for him. And so who created? God? Yes. Holy Spirit? Yes. Jesus? Yes. They all created 
I like Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us, plural, make man in plural, our image in our likeness. That's us and our sounds Trinitarian. Our theology as Christians, what we believe about God is biblical theology and is clearly Trinitarian. We believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus the Son, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. One in essence, but three distinct persons. Mysterious, yes, very mysterious, but very biblical. Very biblical. And while I may not fully understand it, it doesn't limit my faith. I trust in the Trinity. I rely upon it. You and I do such things all of the time. Uh, not long ago, I got on, a, on a, a jet, boarded that jet. And every time I get on one of those jets, I think, my goodness gracious, how does this massive piece of steel filled with all this luggage and all these big people, how in the world does that piece of steel get up into the air? I can't explain it. I'm sure some can. I can't explain it, but I trust it and I get on it and I have faith that it's going to get me from point A to point B. Mostly faith, mostly faith. I, I get a little nervous occasionally. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I trust in the Holy Spirit. I trust in the paraclete. And you notice in the text in John 16, you know what the main objective of the Holy Spirit is? It will never change. It will always be the same. Jesus said, and when the Spirit comes, the, the purpose is for the glorification of Jesus Christ. The Spirit, more than anything else, wants to glorify Jesus in my life and in yours. Look at John 16, look at verse 13 and 14. However, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will speak on his own authority and whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. And notice this, Jesus said, and he will glorify me. He will glorify me. Meaning the Holy Spirit is always working in us as his children, always working in us, leading us to honor and to exalt Jesus to facilitate his name being worshiped and praised and adored. And I'd also add, any true spirit-filled believer, whoever they might be, whether preacher or teacher or evangelist or prophet or church member, if what they sue, say and do does not glorify Jesus, I'd be very careful around them. In other words, if they draw more attention to themselves... And they're more interesting about them receiving attention and them receiving praise than Jesus, I'd be leery of them. If more of the money is flowing into their pockets and they're buying homes in Florida and homes in Santa Monica and flying from coast to coast in their own private jet and they seem to be increasing and the Holy Spirit is decreasing, I'd beware of those people. I, and I'll, I'll just say this, it always amazes me when I watch some of them on television. Not all of them, some of them are really good. Some of them are really good, good expositors on television and on the Bible. Some are really good, but some of them are really bad. And it always amazes me how you can not discern the bad ones and how people send money into them. I, I just, it amazes me. I don't have any discernment. The point is, wherever the Holy Spirit is at work, Jesus will be exalted. The more the Spirit of God works and moves among us as a church, the one thing you can be certain is going to happen. Jesus is going to be exalted in the church. Not people, not persons, not personalities. He will exalt the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And after all, is there anything that you want more than that as a believer? 
God, somehow that you would work in me and you would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ through my life, in my family, in the workplace, in my church family, that Jesus would be glorified. I'm not going to finish this today. The Holy Spirit is a unique person. We need to be careful not to grieve him. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity, and we need to be careful not to try and limit him. Third, the Holy Spirit is the author of truth, and he will guide us into all truth. Jesus said, Lord, your word is truth. You remember Jesus, thy word is truth. He prayed in John 17, Father, your word is truth. Sanctify, set my people apart in truth because he's the author of truth. The apostle John wrote in Revelation to the churches, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's the author of truth, and we need to be careful, to listen to him. He's the interpreter of truth. He is our teacher. We need to be careful to be coming to him, seeking him. He's the creator. He's the agent of all of life. We need to be careful to serve him. Let me close. God has not given us a spirit of fear. We not, need not fear the person of the Holy Spirit. We need not fear the work of the Holy Spirit. No fear regarding how he might choose to work in us and how he might choose to work through us in your life, in your family, in our church. We never, never need to fear what the Spirit of God may do because whatever he does will always be for the purpose of bringing glory to Jesus Christ in your life and through mine. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is comparable to the wind. Holy Spirit is comparable to rivers of living water. John captures it best. In John 3, he said to Nicodemus, Oh, Nicodemus, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not understand these things? How do you not understand the Spirit? The Spirit is like the wind, and the wind blows where it will, and it moves as it will, and Nicodemus, you can't control it, and you can't predict it. Likewise, the Holy Spirit will work. And the Holy Spirit will move in the same way. And how good it is when you feel him. And how good it is when you see the effects of what he does. But you and I cannot predict the Holy Spirit and how he's going to work and how he's going to move. And you and I certainly do not control him. We can quench him. We can grieve him, but we don't. Control him. Jesus stood in John chapter 7 and said, He who believes on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly, out of his life shall flow what? Rivers, rivers of living water. He's saying the spirit will flow out of us like a river bringing forth life to a dry and barren world. And I want to tell you, what I sense, and I've sensed this one other time in 36, 37 years of pastoring a church. I sensed it one other time in an extraordinary special way as I was pastoring, begin to sense that the Spirit of God was doing something new. And I remember praying, I, God, I pray that we'll be open for new wineskins. 
And since the Holy Spirit began to work and was wanting to pour new wine into his church, new wine into our lives, Lord, I pray it would be open for new wineskins. And I sensed it one other time, and the Holy Spirit began to move for several years in the life of the church that I was pastoring, and I can't explain it other than it was God. There was new life. There was enthusiasm and joy and excitement to gather as the body of Christ, and God began to flood the church with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and God added to us, and God blessed us in ways that I never could explain. But there was several years in my former church in the early years when he moved in some extraordinary special ways. And I look back on it. I was glad to be a part of it. I can't explain it. Like the wind. He decided to blow. He decided to move. And my prayers got a just pray that my sail would be hoisted high, ready to receive the winds of your, of your power and of your presence. I can't explain it. And I can sense, by God's grace, the same thing that he's stirring here. God may be stirring here through the presence of his Holy Spirit and we don't want to miss him. We don't want to quench him. We don't want to grieve him. We just say, God, breathe on me. Breathe on me. Pour, pour new wine. Pour it in. In my life, in the life of my church family, to glorify Jesus. To glorify Jesus. I'm going to invite you to to pray with me as Don comes and if you want to join me at an altar to bow your knee or to get on your knees where you are in that pew and just say it's your prayer Lord be Lord new wine I want to receive whatever your spirit wants to do in my life to glorify Jesus and Lord I long for that in my church family then I just I invite you to join me in prayer as we stand together and as we sing.